Let's have a prayer. Lord God, as we breathe in and as we breathe out, we thank you for the gift of breath, for the gift of life, for the lives that you have given to us. We know that life on this earth is your good and precious gift to us, even though sometimes it hurts, sometimes it's confusing, sometimes it seems almost too hard to manage, but still it is your gift. And in that gift, we begin to know you and your everlasting love, your unlimited power, your inscrutable and yet somehow knowable ways in the universe. We thank you that by your word, by your people, by the history of those who have known you, by the lives of those who know you today and surround us and encourage us that we know you as well. So come and be with us as our treasured and honored guest. Although, in a sense, it is we who are your guests in your creation, and we appreciate that. So be with us as your word opens us up to deeper and deeper truth that inspires and encourages us to live this day with faith, with hope, with love, with contentment, with joy, with courage and strength and conviction, to meet the challenges that are here, to answer the opportunities that lay before us. And in all of this, may you be glorified. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Are you enjoying Genesis? I don't know if I've asked you that question lately. Yes, yes. Uh, it was about 22 or 23 years ago that we studied Genesis here. And it's been that long since I myself have worked all the way through Genesis. And so I am remembering some things. It's amazing how much you forget to remember. So it's nice to remember these things. And of course, learning new things along the way. Just to set the stage for us a little bit, let's remember where we are in the story. God makes everything, it's magnificent. We mess it up and decide to be God. So we have to live outside of the place where God put us. God at some point starts over in a sense, not completely, but starts over. And then God decides to reveal himself in the history of a people, of a family, starting with the person Abraham and Abraham's wife, Sarah. God says, you'll become a great nation. We have just completed the story of Abraham and Sarah in the sense of their own lives. We've completed that first generation. And we've seen how even though Abraham and Sarah sometimes waver in their faithfulness, sometimes try to organize and manage things better than God has them organized and managed, still God is faithful to them and gives them an heir, gives them the son of the promise, Isaac. And so Abraham and Sarah now move off the scene, although they will never completely leave the scene, and they still have not, actually. We're still talking about Abraham and Sarah, aren't we? So they are still among us, still in that sense, if you will, alive. And so we are continuing the story now uh, with Isaac and with what goes on with Isaac. This is the second chapter. This is like one of the world's longest uh, serial TV shows, right? Right? You think, you know, maybe some of you watch soap operas. I don't know. There are soap operas that have been on for, what, 30 or 40 years, right? So that ain't nothing compared to what's in the Bible. So let's start with Genesis. We don't have as much text to deal with today, but we have some huge, huge themes to talk about. Genesis chapter 25. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Padan Aram, sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. The children struggled within her, and she said, If it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, 
and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the elder shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay, in these few words, we have the possibilities and probabilities and promise of all kinds of stuff. <laughs> right? <laughs> and over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at the story of Jacob and Esau. I, I didn't say Esau and Jacob, even though Esau is the older of the two twins of Jacob and Esau. So let's start to take this apart. Um, and I very, very much want to hear your reflections and thoughts on this. Uh, so let's have our, our uh, microphone people ready to go. So these are the descendants of Isaac. It's important We've said this all along, and we see it here again. It's important that we understand that God's activity in the world is located, it plays itself out in real human life. It's not just something reserved for when you go to church. It's not just something that happens every once in a while when you have a mountaintop experience or an ecstatic emotional sort of event. God's activity, God's presence, God's plan plays itself out in normal, real human life. In physical locations, that's one of the reasons Genesis mentions the places. In real people's lives, that's why Genesis talks about the people, the names of the people. And it happens over time. In fact, you might say that, that the plan of God, the work of God in the world is such a long story that we need to have help in understanding what the story actually is because we see only a tiny, tiny, tiny little piece of it. Does that make sense to you? Um, some of us uh, remember, sometimes you see a, a video of something that shows a picture of something, right? And then the video begins to pan out and you step back a step, and you see a little bit more of the picture, and then you see a little bit more of the picture, and you realized that tiny little view that you had from the first was not the whole picture. It wasn't the whole story, and the story changes. You get a much broader understanding of what the whole picture is about when you can step back and see the whole thing. You know what I'm talking about? That's kind of what Genesis is giving us here. And so it's telling us where we are in the story, where we are in the timeline, where we are in the picture. So Isaac marries Rebekah and prays to Rebekah because she is barren. Where have we heard this before? Right? Where have we heard this before? Okay, Sarah, absolutely. What did we say about the fact of Sarah's barrenness. Do you remember what, what things we said about that from a theological perspective? Anybody remember? If nobody remembers, then I have failed absolutely and completely. <laughs> we remember that the circumstances of our lives that seem completely the opposite of what God wills for us are not the end of the story. God says to Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a baby. But Sarah can't have a baby, apparently. And so it seems like God's promise, God's plan is null and void. But then what happened with Abraham and Sarah? Okay, they had a baby. You learned something. Thank heavens. <laughs> We're going to have to go back and repeat first grade all over again here, <laughs> right? They had a baby. God can act outside 
of the circumstances that we think control our lives. And here again, we see this happening in Isaac and Rebekah's life. The Bible, in some sense, repeats itself over and over and over again. Have you gotten that figured out? Where else in the Bible do we see circumstances that seem to be hopeless, and yet somehow something miraculous happens to bring hope again? Name a few examples for me. Say that again. Jonah. Yes, Jonah. Is that what you said was Jonah? Yes, thank you. Jonah, right? God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh, preach repentance so the people will repent. Jonah doesn't think it can happen. Jonah tries to get away from God. God swallows him up in a big fish, eventually spits him out. Jonah decides to go. Jonah ends up in Nineveh, says repent, and lo and behold, the people repent. Nineveh's ticked off. Jonah's ticked off about it, but God did something miraculous there. Where else do you see this play out? Say who? The cross. the cross. The cross. Boy, you went to the top, right? You just went straight for the heart of it, the jugular, right? The cross. God's very own son, God himself, is dead on the cross, dead in the grave, and God has a different plan. There are so many other examples. God's people, this great nation of people, are starving, and so they go to Egypt, and they end up being slaves in Egypt, but then they're delivered from Egypt. Time after time after time, when things seem absolutely hopeless, God is full of hope. So that's, again, what we see here. Now, what does Isaac do in the hopelessness of this situation? He prays. He goes to the Lord. Time and time again. Sometimes it's helpful to maybe make photocopies of your Bible and then just take a highlighter and start highlighting places where you see the same words or the same phrases over and over again. And you will see all throughout Genesis that people go to the Lord. What does that say to you? Are there certain phrases of your life? Are there certain experiences or practices in your life that if we were to write them out in a script and then highlight them, we would go to them over and over again? What happens over and over again in your life? Okay, how about Bible study? Good, good answer. Good, holy, religious answer. My mind immediately went to, went to Starbucks, went to Starbucks, went to Starbucks, went to Starbucks, you know, right? There are habits and patterns of life that shape who we are. It is a habit and pattern of the people of God to go to God, to involve God in their lives because they know that God is involved in their lives. God chooses to involve himself in our lives. And yet sometimes we don't even recognize that God is there or admit that God is there. So Isaac goes to the Lord. And what happens? Rebecca conceives. Rebecca conceives. Okay. Now, yesterday in, in uh, at La, the Lacosta Glen study, this, this idea occurred to me. I didn't play it out a whole lot, but I need to play it out today because I'm in a room full of women. And so I want to talk with you about pregnancy and childbirth. Uh, but actually, I have nothing to say to you. Maybe you have something to say to me. <laughs> I realize not every woman gets to be pregnant and have a kid. You know, blessed are you among women that you don't have to put up with children, right? So what's going on inside Rebecca? What's going on inside Rebecca? Rebecca says that, that there's something struggling within me. If it's to be this way, why do I live? And she inquires of the Lord. There again, Rebecca goes to the Lord and God speaks to her. What do you think was going on in Rebecca's head? And I'm going to shut up and let you talk. Okay, let's get, that, let's get the mic here. Raise your hand. We're gonna, we want to get you on record. It was her womb, not her head. It was her womb, not her head. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> So what was going on in her womb that made her say what she said? The twins were fighting with each other. Fascinating. 
Someone else, tell me what's going on. That's the obvious circumstance, right? Yes, Lynn? It was pretty scary being pregnant back then. It's pretty scary being pregnant now. <laughs> yes. But the chances are you would die. So if you had this uh, strange feeling that nobody around you had, you would have been scared. Yes. Scared. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, I understand that being pregnant is a difficult thing. Um, I've been told this <laughs> over and over and over again, right? It's a difficult thing. It's a scary thing, right? Um, I, I don't know what it feels like. You know what it feels like. I know what it feels like from the outside. And believe me, it's really, really weird to put your hand on your wife's tummy and feel this thing going on inside of her, you know, kicking and whatnot, right? Isn't that fascinating? Here we go. Let's get the mic over here. Run, 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 run to Barbara. <laughs> uh, I always felt that knowing that I was having a life grown inside me, uh, could I do the right thing to raise this child? Uh-huh. You know, and uh, I, I always wondered whether or not my abilities would bring them to adulthood in the way that I would hope for them to go. Yeah, 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 that, that makes perfect sense. Rebecca's kind of wondering about the immediate present, you know, this struggle is going on inside. And she's also looking way into the future, isn't she? And God is helping her look that way. What else do you see going on in these few words? Delora. It's interesting that, she, that God talked to Rebecca and not um, Jacob or Isaac. Not Isaac, yeah. Yeah, God talked to Rebecca and not to Isaac. Yeah, yeah. Rebecca become, is an extremely important player in this story as the story of Jacob plays itself out, isn't she? Yeah, we'll see. I, I don't, I don't want to give away too many of the secrets of the story. If you want to know them, read ahead. <laughs> right? What else, what else do you see in this situation and this context? Yes, right here. I have no intentions of being political. I'm looking at this as a nurse, uh -huh. biologically. Sure. This story tells me that life begins at conception because these two children had distinct personalities in the womb. Mm -hmm. And the story began at conception. The story began at conception. Yeah, yeah. It, I, you cannot escape that, that, that understanding that, that from the beginning of the, the lives of these children that something important is going on. Yeah, yeah. Okay, back here. We often saw with twins that after they were born, if you put them in separate beds, cribs, they fussed and cried, and that they were only happy if you put them in the same bed. So they, that bond has formed before they're born. Mm -hmm. That even though this this story shows that they they were um, there was they were competitors in a way, but still that bond is there from the very beginning. That they curl up, they put their their face in, the, in somebody in the, under somebody's arm and they don't care they just want to be all curled up together like they were in the, in the uterus yeah 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 I mean I kind of feel that way and I'm not a twin I just like to curl up under somebody's arm and make the world go away right <laughs> for sure for sure yeah but especially with twins there's something that goes on there yes um I'm I'm, I'm thinking well she's feeling something going on and I wonder if she knows that the boys don't, or that she has twins, and that there's a fight going on inside of her. But then I, I, I hear what you say about twins liking, but it sounds like they were rivals already. Mm -hmm. and, but I don't understand why um, the one was holding on, Jacob was holding on to Esau's heel as he was being born. Why, mm -hmm. why was that? Mm -hmm. Does anybody know? Uh, anybody want to give a biological, physiological We've got a whole bunch of medical professionals in this room, so I dare not answer. <laughs> I was doing a birth once and put my fingers in to check the baby, and a little hand grabbed my finger. So as I pulled my hand out, this arm. So the babies, especially twins, and, and baby twins are so active. I mean, you just, there's just constant motion. They disturb each other. They kick each other, and... So for a mother who's carrying twins, she, she has a lot of fetal activity going on all the time. Yeah. And um, so it's not, it's not unusual that he would have been holding on to that 
heel if they were both coming head first. You know, sometimes they come different positions, but mm -hmm, if they're both mm -hmm. head first, the first one came out feet, the other one grabbed the foot. Yeah. And, and they they're, they are constantly grab, they're grabbing things. That's those are common thing that babies do. Yeah. So you find them kind of intertwined and tangled, yeah, and get, yeah, you, so that would be a natural yeah. thing. Yeah. And she may have known because I'm sure that the midwives at the time were feeling her belly and saying, yeah, no, I think I got two heads here you mm -hmm. know, that I can feel, or mm -hmm. you know, I can tell that there's a, a lot more fetal parts than should be here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've always just kind of understood it as there wasn't much room inside there, so they just kept pushing right. <laughs> I don't know. One last comment, then we'll keep moving here. Yes? Well, when I read this passage, I didn't get the feeling that she knew that she had twins. Mm -hmm. She knew there was a lot of action. So much so that her comment was, why do you let me live mm -hmm. if it is thus? Mm -hmm. And so I felt that she was worried about what that baby's life was going to be, mm -hmm. either as a person um, and, and the way he lived his life or physically. I think she was a little afraid mm -hmm. because it was not normal. Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I, I think all of these comments make perfect sense and helps help us see the complexity of this situation, right? Just the complexity of, of number one, any pregnancy. And of course, pregnancy still is a risky business, right? It is a risky business. We thank God for medical professionals now who can help us manage through so much of that but still it is a risky business and babies sometimes don't survive. Mamas sometimes don't survive. And so the context of this, of, of, of a woman, Rebecca now, who is pregnant and stuff starts to go on inside you, right? Right? I've heard lots of stories about women who get pregnant and, and how can you prepare a woman for pregnancy? It's an experience you've never had before, right? And so it starts to happen and you're not sure what's going on with you perhaps, right? You don't want to admit maybe what's going on with you. You've never experienced it before, so you have to have somebody to, oh, that's why a nurse can say to you, oh yeah, that's what's going on with you, right? So there's all this stuff happening. It's an awful lot, and Rebecca wonders, is she going to survive this experience? Is the baby going to survive this experience, right? She goes to the Lord. I, I, you know, the moment anybody knows they're pregnant, that's probably immediately what should happen is you should go to the Lord and say, help, help me with all this, right? So she goes to the Lord and the Lord reveals to her that she's got two babies. Two nations are inside your womb, right? You know, Barbara, what you said about raising the child. When you have a child, it's not just one child that's going to be born or now with fertility drugs, eight, <laughs> right? There, there literally has been a nation <laughs> inside, right? A basketball team plus three spares, right? Th the promise, the future, the possibility of this child, when the child is conceived, right? Is, it's not guaranteed what's going to happen, but there is something that's going to happen. So Rebecca becomes very, very concerned, goes to God, and God reveals to her that there's more going on than just the natural movement of a baby or the natural struggle now of two babies inside the womb. God characterizes it as struggle, not just this is normal activity of a baby beginning to exercise inside mom. It's characterized as struggle. One shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. And then when they're born, one comes out red. Actually, the, the name Esau uh, and Esau's hairiness, there's a lot of words that are used here in Hebrew that all have their root in the word for red. The word, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, study of the language itself, right? Esau comes out and then Jacob is... is grabbing onto his hand, and what is medically understood as a normal sort of thing happening when more than one kid comes out, is now cast in theological terms. There's something symbolic happening here. We don't know how it's going to play out yet, but as we get to the end of the story, we know how it does play out. Okay? We know how it plays out. The elder shall serve the younger. 
That phrase right there is full of stuff, right? How many of you are the oldest child in your family? How many of you are the youngest child in your family? How many of you are middle children in some way, shape, or form? See, I could have told you that before you knew, because I knew those of you who are the bosses of the world, and those of you who are the spoiled babies, and then those of you who are the finely balanced normal people from the middle, right? (laughs) Of course. It is not often that the elder serves the younger, is it? What's the normal thing that happens in human life, in human families? That's right. Normally, it's the oldest who is the strongest in the family, right? They're they're physically stronger than all the other ones who come out, at least in in the beginning, right? They, They are older and wiser, and they know more stuff, right? And then society lays on top of that the rule of primogenitor. We need to talk about primogenitor because it is the way that the world organizes itself. Why? What are some good reasons? There are some good reasons. What are the good reasons for this idea that the eldest inherits the family's wealth, the family's estate? Okay, hold up your hand so we can get mics on you. Let's try. Experience. Experience, okay. By the time the next child comes, they've kind of been through some things so they can get some guidance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The older one has experience the old, by the virtue of that experience, the older one maybe is the, the most trusted one to turn everything over to. Okay, why else? What are other good reasons for it? Yes? It's a means of preserving the family's wealth instead of diluting it throughout the generations among multiple offspring. Yes, yes. This practice is a means of preserving the wealth of the family in, a, in the biggest chunk possible, right? The easiest way that I've ever understood that is when you talk about the family farm, right? The family farm is X big. If you divide it up among 10 kids, it becomes unviable, right? So you got to leave it with the one. Why else is primogenitor a good idea? Any other ideas? Okay, I can think of a couple more. Primogenitor solves the problem of deciding to whom you're going to give everything. It's almost not even your decision. It's like, this is the eldest child. This is who gets it. You know, Don't the rest of you fight and squabble and, and skive and kaneem, scheme and connive. <laughs> skive and kaneem. That was interesting. <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't think I've ever said that before. <laughs> right? Because it's, it's, it's just decided from the very beginning, right? And it's a simple way to organize society. Society itself, right? Let me, let me pose a hypothetical situation, okay? There's a family, you're, you're a young woman growing up, and there's a family that lives next door to you that has vast estates and wealth and things, and there's 10 boys in the family. Who are you going to set your sights on? Right? Now, that's one way of simply saying that this is a way for society to organize itself in such a way that there are rules, there are boundaries, and everything can move along very smoothly, right? Unless you're Harry and, and, uh, and William. Is that his name? Right? Well, there. <laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> there is nothing new under the sun, is there? <laughs> okay, so already in this story, we see that... that A normal, natural, real-life situation of a woman getting pregnant and not quite understanding what all is going on, how God is somehow involved in all of that. And then, looking at the next couple of verses, Esau was a skillful hunter, Jacob was a quiet man, and Isaac loved Esau, and Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay. Right there is the plot line for a script to be written for Hollywood, isn't it? Right? How many of you know of situations or maybe have lived in a situation where there was clear favoritism on the part of parents for children? If you can't identify something somewhere, then you're not nearly as wise as I think you are. Right? Right? 
Exactly, exactly. So right there, we know that something is going. Now, do you think that God made Isaac love Esau more and Rebekah love Jacob more? Did God make that happen? Where does that come from? Got some answers? Where does that come from? Yeah. I think we've all seen situations where parents sometimes don't realize it, but they have a tendency to bond better with one of their children as opposed to another one. Mm -hmm. And maybe it, in this case, the, uh, the father did because he was a hunter mm -hmm. and the mother because Jacob was quiet. You, you can't, it's human nature to have the psychology without really being aware of it or understanding it. And, you know, I, I'm, as I read this, I'm thinking maybe that's where it all started, mm -hmm. where you had the separation between the two boys. And then down through the generation, generations, it just repeats itself. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say one parent is wrong or one parent is right. It's just more human nature. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful comment. And, and it is true, isn't it? I mean, I have four children. And of course, I've observed many, many families over the years, and, and no two kids are exactly alike, are they? Would you agree with me in, on that, right? Now, what, what about when you have eight or 10 or 15? They're not going to all be alike. Some are going to be more like you. Some are going to be more like, like their mother or others, right? And it's simply natural. So let's, let's, let's play out this scenario a little bit more to get in touch with the humanity of all of this, the reality of all this, Okay. So by this statement about, let's just take Isaac and Esau for a minute, right? Esau loved to go out and hunt. He was an outdoorsy kind of guy, right? He wore camouflage caps, right? And he drove one of those big honking trucks, four by four, you know, with way oversized tires capable of, you know, running over boulders and things so that he could go down to the corner market, whatever, right? You can kind of get a picture of Esau. That, and I realize that's stereotypical, and I'm offending everybody here. Too bad. I'm old. I don't care. Right? That's the stereotypical view of, 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 of the kind of person that Esau was. And clearly, Isaac must have had some appreciation and love for that. Right? Okay. Hey, boys, who wants to go out hunting today? Right? And Esau pops up, pops up and says, let's go, Dad. You know, and he, and he gets out the rifle and the knife and pulls on his boots, and off they go to slog around in the mud and... and, and bring home some food for the family, right? And Jacob sits there. Let's talk about Jacob and Rebecca. Jacob sits there and says, I'm not doing any of that stuff. I want to stay home with mom. And I want to learn to cook. We're going to watch the baking channel and the Hallmark channel and, and you know, mom, teach me how to knit and quilt and I don't know, right? Again, this is obviously overstated. So yes, it is simply natural that, that parents tend, especially with a ton of children, parents tend to gravitate more to one, maybe less to the other, that sort of thing. But here we have simply the observation. Among these two boys, the one was more like the one, the other was more like the other, and therein lies a problem, Houston. <laughs> right? But this is a normal, natural human situation in which God somehow is at work, okay? God somehow is at work. So, we know from the get-go, and this is going to play itself out in the story, we won't talk about it all today, of course. From the get-go, there's going to be strife, contention, conflict, struggle between these two brothers, right? Is God present? Is God at work in this difficult family situation? I'm seeing lots of heads going this way. Any heads going this way? Right. Right. Let me ask you this question. Can you identify in your own life or in your knowledge of the lives of others? where somehow God seems to be working through conflict, struggle, contention. Can you think of something? Anybody willing to share some specifics of that? 
Yeah, okay. Again, it's back to human nature. We learn by our mistakes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. God lets us make mistakes mm -hmm. so that we learn mm -hmm. not to repeat, not to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes it takes us many times of repeating the same mistake before we realize we're always going to get the same end. Okay, okay. And I can remember in my life years ago when I had a wake-up call and I got, fell off a horse and um, fractured my back. And as I came to on the ground, I knew this was God talking to me. Mm -hmm. I knew it was God saying, Susan, wake up. Mm -hmm. You're not following the way that I have for you. Yeah. And I wouldn't trade that for anything because yeah. it was very special. Yeah. Feeling surrounded. So God does work through our mistakes and the things that come out of those mistakes that are difficult and hard. Okay? That's one good answer. What, does somebody else have a way to answer that? To identify that? Yes, right here. Maybe this isn't a perfect example, but I'm thinking about the war in Ukraine and Russia and the prejudice that the Russian people have that because they're getting bad intel from their leader that eventually all this truth will come out and people will be able to make the decision that's best for them. And I think God's got his hand in all this, even though it's such a terrible situation over there, but that, um, that there'll be something good that comes out of this, mm -hmm. that something positive will be found, mm -hmm. and that something God wants us to Maybe it's just my hope, hopefulness that there is something good that could come out of it too. I don't, you know, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Hard, hard to see how that's going to play out, of course, because we're still in the middle of it. And yet this story teaches you, the Bible teaches you that when something terrible is going on, not that it's not terrible, it is terrible. We prefer that the terrible never happen. And yet out of the terrible, something good can come, which is the way God works. So that, that's, a, that's a faithful way of looking at what's going on in Ukraine, even though, of course, we would prefer that that had never happened. Yet it is often in the conflict and the struggle that God does something. Well, the, and then you think about the Israelites when they were thrown into the desert for 40, 40 years. That, mm -hmm. that was another, you know, to them it was a hardship, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't like being out there. Mm -hmm. But what they learned and what came out of it was um, God's will, God, what God wanted. So, I know, I'm talking too much. Yeah. <laughs> Over here, to the far right. It, I recently had a conversation with my brother who is retired but was a Southern Baptist missionary. Mm -hmm. And he said that during his missions, people he would be ministering to would have a tragedy or something happen, and they'd always come to him with the question, why? And he said um, his answer was, and I would never thought about it this way, he said, do you think that God is in heaven slapping his forehead and saying, gee, I didn't see that coming? Um, <laughs> that there is a plan that we are not to know or don't know for some time. Mm -hmm. Trust in that there is um, a greater, greater hand in things mm -hmm. that we always can recognize. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great way to characterize that. That's part of that perspective of, of, of panning away from the specifics of this family's life and the way it plays itself out and looking at the, the thing that's much bigger and broader in that, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Someone else have a comment on that? Yeah, so here, here we are given the sense that God knows what's coming, right? There is no, oh, oh whoops, right? God knows what's coming, right? Rebecca, you have two nations growing inside of you, and, there's, it, and things are going to be very weird in the way things play themselves out, right? Exactly, exactly. And so we would say, in the midst of the pain and struggle, it's very difficult to say. You don't say to someone who's just had a tragedy in life, oh, that's okay, God has a plan, <laughs> right? Right, that point, you, if you get slugged, you, you deserve it. it. It's just the way it is, right? Because God doesn't want that stuff. God wor works against that stuff. And yet still, 
Still, God is not going to be stopped. God's plan is not going to be canceled out or derailed, rerouted, ultimately just scrapped, even in the midst of all that other bad stuff, right? Because at the end of the story, what is the end of the Bible? What's the message at the end of the Bible? God wins. God wins. Yes, exactly. Let's read this last little piece because this is absolutely fascinating. Verses 29 to 34 of chapter 25. Once, when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore he was called Edom. Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You've heard this story, right? Let's play around with it a little bit, okay? Let's start at just the very human level, if you will. What's going on between the two boys here? What's happening? Okay, here we go. Typical argument between brothers. Yeah, just... Yeah. I want this, and you've got this, so, you know, big deal. You know, I don't think Esau really understood the importance of what he just did. Yeah, yeah. Esau's hungry. He's a hungry teenager, a hungry teenage boy. I used to be one of those. Yes, I used to eat a lot more than I do. Yeah, now, just, now, now I'm just hungry. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly, yes. He's been conniving and planning his whole life since he was born, hanging on a heel. Um, he found a weak moment with Esau. Esau seems a simple soul who just likes to go out and hunt. And so Jacob has been, you know, conniving his whole life. To do sure, this. sure, absolutely. Esau's kind of a simple guy. I'm going to go out and hunt, kill, eat, done. Life is simple, right? Jacob has been watching all those soap operas back at home with Rebecca all these years and see... <laughs> No, that wasn't going too far, right? It's clear that Jacob sees something bigger going on, right? I kind of agree with you. Esau's just hungry. Yeah, sell me your bread. Okay. Maybe Esau doesn't even consider the possibility that he could lose his birthright, right? That would not be normal at all for what is going to happen to happen, right? So, and but but Jacob has... Jacob's wheels are turning always. Jacob is, Jacob is an operator. He's a schemer and a conniver, right? Okay, over here, Laura. I think they had different values. They say all through here that they were different. And it doesn't sound like Esau really cared much about the birthright. And um, his brother did. He wanted to live on the farm and, and, and take that over. And his other brother just wanted to go out hunting and doing stuff. So yeah. their values yeah. were very different. Yeah. Where, where have you seen in, again, your history, your family's history, or just broader stories of history, where the person who's supposed to get everything and run everything doesn't really want to do that? Okay? Here again, I need to pick on the British royalty, okay? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. If, if we have to read about them every flippin' day, then they're fair game, Right? What, what, was the guy, what was the king's name? They use all the same names. What's that? Henry VIII. Oh, Edward VIII. Edward the Married Wallace Simpson, the divorcee, and said, I'd rather be married to her than be king. Boom. There you have it. Okay, now that is just history. I'm not picking on them, Dottie. I'm just saying that's the historical record. <laughs> right? Yeah, so maybe Esau, I really don't care about running the family business, right? And, and Jacob, whoo, Jacob goes after it. That's going to be the story of Jacob's life, is conniving, scheming, trying to find a way to control, to organize everything. And Esau kind of gets pushed to the wayside. Okay, here again, the question is, is God in this? 
can God do something with this? Can God work through a scheming, conniving swindler is kind of what it boils down to. If you were a lawyer and you were arguing the case, okay, fast forward now to that point when, when uh, Isaac dies, okay, and Jacob and Esau are standing there in the courtroom, and Esau says, I'm the one that's supposed to get everything, and Jacob says, no, you sold it to me. How would you argue the case in favor of Esau? You know, I'd say, number one, Esau was just a hungry teenager. He was out of his mind, okay? He cannot be held responsible for what his decisions were, right? Jacob, Jacob was creating a deal that's actually illegal. It's not the way business is done. That's not the way our societies are. There's all kinds of things you could say that are not normal here. Therefore, we're going to go back and do it the normal way, but that's not what happens. Jacob is the one who receives the blessing. Is God in this? Is God in? Can God work through all of that stuff that goes on in normal human life? And the answer is? Of course. Of course. Good. <laughs> God has the whole picture, the tapestry. I've heard over and over again, and I love that. And there's each little stitch yet to be played out in that tapestry for us to see. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is not just Esau or Jacob. Their mother had a big part in playing this out. Oh boy, howdy did she. <laughs> Yes, but that's for future Bible study. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've kind of introduced that idea. Yes, we have. Yes, we have. Yeah, you, you, you almost have the sense that Isaac and Esau are kind of, you know, the simple, I just want to have a good life. They're not worried about all that stuff, right? And then there's Rebecca, the mother behind the sun. Ooh, you could make a good soap opera out of this, couldn't you? <laughs> All of life is a soap opera. In fact, I believe that the stories of real life are far more unbelievable and far-fetched than anything you've ever seen coming out of Hollywood or wherever else it is. Right? And yes, I'm looking at you all because I know the stories of your lives. <laughs> right? And yet God is in all of that, right? Here's the famous bargain. Now, here's one last question. We have this sense that Esau and Jacob are born into life even before they're born, as a matter of fact. And the stage is already set. And God knows what that stage is. God knows what's going to happen. Do Esau and Jacob have any choice in the matter? Can they change anything about the situation? Or can they, with free will, decide to do things a different way? To be, be you know, what, what would happen if somewhere down the line, you know, Jacob and Esau, uh, you know, went to see Dr. Phil and said, Dr. Phil, we've been fighting all of our lives. And Dr. Phil has, you know, guys, I want you to hug and make up. And, and they decide to get along. Could they do that, right? This is the question between God's plan and free will. And the answer is? I have no answer. Okay. okay. Uh, that question's always played havoc with my mind. Uh, did God have a plan for me when I was conceived mm -hmm. uh, for my life? How rigid is that plan throughout my life? Mm -hmm. And... If I were to believe in predestination, would I really change the way that I live? And how important would I feel that these changes would play a part in this plan? Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? And I agree completely with you. There is no final answer to it. That on the one hand, when you look at Human life and existence, it's this way, and we simply play out the roles that were set for us. And on the other hand, though, we make decisions. We make decisions. You got a comment back here, Lori? Did you have your hand up? No? Okay, right here. Yes, Doreen. Yes, we make decisions. We have choices, but God knows in the end what choice we'll make. Mm -hmm. So 
I may have made a terrible error doing something, but he works with me until he gets me to do what he wants. Yeah, yeah. That's how we ultimately resolve that. We don't know how it happens. We know that it happens, and we trust God in that somehow. Yes, Nikki. That is Nikki. It's hard to see past the light. <laughs> um, isn't it the case of inception, though, where God has placed the idea with Rebecca that the younger shall serve the elder? So when you have that um, placement of inception of that idea, that, mm -hmm. that's fed through their entire childhood into mm -hmm. their teenagehood leading to this conflict. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, you do. Yeah. Jacob is not a completely independent actor in his own story, is he? He has been shaped and conditioned and controlled by his mother, okay? Which tells us that, that all of us are shaped by not just our mothers, although mom, of course, is the most important. I'll admit that to you here, except when dad is, but that's another story, right? All of us are shaped, our destiny, if you will, is shaped by the situation into which we are born. And that is determined before we are born. You know, it, it truly, you don't get to pick your parents, you don't get to pick your history, that's given to you. All of that is given to you. And the, the influences, the people, the experiences, the, the events that flow into what your life is are outside of your control. That is one side of the nature of life. On the other hand, on the other hand, God says, you choose. You have the responsibility. I have given you the mind, the heart, the will, the knowledge to know what you're supposed to do, to know who you are supposed to be, how you are supposed to act, so that you make the wise choice. And we are not absolved of that responsibility or that possibility, right? We make a choice. That's what the whole, in a sense, the whole story of Jesus is about. Jesus says, no, you can do better. <laughs> I know you can. I know that you can bring more peace, joy, love, happiness, all that good stuff into life by the way that you act. And so we live within that, that, that tension between those two things, that dichotomy, if you will, that creative tension. And that's the way life is. We are not responsible for determining what God's plan is. We are not responsible, nor do we have any power over making God's plan happen, except for our own little tiny piece in it that is bigger in some sense than, than we can see. Because sometimes the choice that God lays before us is a choice that seems to be disastrous, even though it's the right choice, and sometimes not. So in all of that, ultimately, Scripture is going to say, God is at work. Are you a part of that? Okay, God has told me that it's 10 after 10, and it's time to stop. Okay, let's pray. God, thank you so much for being with us today, for giving us this life today. Thank you for helping us to see how many things go into who we are and what life is all about. Help us to appreciate all that we have from the past to rightly evaluate all that we have from the past and help us to live in such a way that the future for generations to come is brighter and brighter as people get to know you. In Jesus we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Live long and prosper.